Welcome to Truthiverse, the number one podcast for free and discerning minds. I'm your host, Brendan Murphy, author and founder of The Truthiversity. As a freedom hacker and truth addict, it's my job to help you reclaim yourself from illusion and live in your power. Living in truth sets you free to holistically upgrade your entire life so you can explore infinite possibility. Join me as we hack our way to a higher evolution. Do you ever wonder how to accelerate your growth, healing, and evolution without hard work, meditation, or spending thousands? Over my years as a conscious seeker, I've encountered one DNA activation and healing method that stands out above the rest and does just that. It's a uniquely potent evolutionary modality that helped me break out of feeling blocked and disconnected, allowing me to unfold more and more of my potential and true self, as well as deepening my spiritual connection, enhancing my energy levels, and more fully activating my body's healing mechanisms. It also remedied a major but little-known energetic blockage which most people have but don't even realize. Now this convenient transformational method forms the core of my Evolve Yourself course, which has helped hundreds of spiritually awake people to accelerate their growth and evolution with minimal effort or cost. Learn everything you need to know at evolveyourself.live. All right, ladies and gents, welcome to this episode of Truthiverse. I I have the pleasure this week of bringing Ralph Ellis back for the second installment. Uh, the The first time I had him on, we talked about the Old Testament. We got into who the characters of the Old Testament really are. Historically speaking, we talked about the events of the Old Testament and where and when they may have actually occurred. Um... And Ralph is extraordinarily well-versed in this subject. So if you don't know his work yet, I strongly recommend you dive into it after watching this. Um, Ralph has been studying this for over 30 years. He calls himself a historian of revisionist history. He's written 14 books. Um, The dude knows what he's talking about. He's extremely well-researched. And I find this subject matter completely fascinating. I've had a long-running interest in it. And Ralph, finding Ralph was, you know, one of the key pieces of the puzzle. So I strongly recommend you pay attention here. And uh, with that said, Ralph, thanks for coming back, mate. It's great to have you again. Pleasure to be on your show again, yeah. Um, and we're heading off on the New Testament. That's always, um, yeah, an interesting topic to look at, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of very, you know, strong opinions around these things. It's very present in this, even in the 21st century. There's a lot of people out there who are still very invested yep. in certain ideas and beliefs and things. Um, so, I mean... We're definitely going to get a reaction with this stuff. Uh, where where would you like to begin? Yeah, especially if you go to America, they're still well into this topic. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus is still their savior over there. But they don't ask the difficult questions. No. And that's what I've always been doing because as a, I tend to call myself a Gnostic atheist, um, so I don't really have a dog in this fight, so I don't mind who this character happens to be. I just follow the data. I follow the history. And you've got to ask the difficult questions. And one of the difficult questions is, uh, who is Saul? Because Saul wrote most of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't know him from the historical record. It's the same problem we had in the Old Testament. All of these characters are missing in the historical record, including Jesus and James. Um, So who might this Saul character be? because he is central to the story. Um, Well, I think we can find him if we follow similarities between two people. And I'm sure that many people, because there have been many very intelligent theologians who have looked into this topic on many occasions, and I'm sure that they have seen exactly what I have seen. Mm -hmm. But they rejected it because it's unpalatable. In fact, it's heretical. You are not allowed to think this person 
as being Saul. And so it would be rejected completely. They would just turn a blind eye and forget they had ever seen it. <laughs> so who is this? Um, who is this character who wrote most of the New Testament? Um, well, um, we, we're looking at two characters here, I'm, and I saw this more than twenty years ago. This was back in 1997 when I wrote about it in my Jesus Last of the Pharaohs, and um, so we got these two characters, and they were both Jews, which always helps, you know. Um, they were both raised in Jerusalem. They were both Roman citizens, which is a little bit unusual. Not that many Jews were Roman citizens. Um, they were both educated as Pharisees. They both became rabbis. Um, they both um, disparaged long hair, which was unusual because, of course, most Jews had long hair, including the Edessans, who we're going to talk about later. Uh, they all had long hair because that's what the Old Testament says. But Saul did not. I mean, he says, um, does nature not teach you that long hair is shameful on a man? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 14. Now, that's quite unusual, you know, for a it shows how pro-Roman he would have been, because mm -hmm. that would have been more of a Roman habit mm -hmm. to have short hair than a Jewish habit. Um, and this other character says very much the same. Uh, he says, uh, when any of them have made a sacred vow, he's talking. Um, uh, oh, yeah, he actually says when any of them have made a sacred vow, I mean, those that are called the Nazarenes, they suffer their hair to grow long. So the Nazarenes, the Nazarites are the church of Jesus and James, but it's unusual wording. They suffer their hair to grow long. It's as if he is saying that I don't approve of long hair. Mm -hmm. So both of these characters didn't have long hair. Uh, they both traveled widely in Europe. Now, that was an elitist thing to do. That was expensive. Not everybody could travel across Europe in this era, 2,000 years ago. Um, they were both very controversial. They were called liars. Uh, and they were attacked by their opponents. They were both on the same prison ship going to Rome. So both of them had been in prison, and they were both sent by the governor um, of Judea to go to Rome to plead their case before Nero. Now, how many people, are, you know, Jewish prisoners are sent to Rome to plead their case before Nero. I mean, for a start, that indicates that this guy was very important mm -hmm. because, you know, if Saul was said to be an itinerant tent maker, we'll go into this later, you don't send itinerant tent makers <laughs> to Rome to go and see the emperor if they've had some misdemeanor. He was accused of teachings that went against Judaism, basically. Um, but you don't send such a person to Rome no. to see the emperor. It means that Saul and this other guy were both very important. They had to be aristocratic or royal or something in order to go and see the emperor to get an adjudication on whether this guy was guilty or not. Mm. Because remember, uh, Nero didn't know anything about Judaism. He, he cannot and would not adjudicate on Jewish law because he didn't know what Jewish law was. Um, this had to be a Roman problem. So, you know, a Roman rule or law had to be broken. 
it's not quite um well i won't go into it because it's it's too complex but anyway they were both on this prison ship um which was called the castor and pollux so the ships even have names in those days um and they were both shipwrecked on malta but they were saved and taken to naples uh and then on to rome to go and see nero mm-hmm. um they both had a flash of inspiration and changed sides you know uh as saul you know on his flash of inspiration on the road to damascus mm-hmm. um they both were prolific letter writers writing uh, all the time and they both had the same publisher epaphroditus there are a great number of similarities between these two characters mm-hmm. and the reason why that would be rejected completely is because the second character is josephus flavius interesting and that causes a problem and that's why any theologian would reject it completely because i mean for instance the first thing it does is it changes the timeline because this jesus character was supposed to be crucified in uh, ad 30 but josephus was not born until ad 37 so the timeline shifts and it does shift and we'll go into this in a minute because the timeline in the gospels is wrong there is a new timeline which is 40 years later and there are many many reasons for thinking that that is true and this is one of them that saul is josephus but um having made that um theory that saul is josephus um it became very explanatory and that's always the basis of a very good uh theory that it starts to explain things that were unknown before or inexplicable before for instance uh it explains how saul was persecuting the church of jesus of james so we have from uh acts uh, 8:3 saul made havoc on the church entering every house and committing them to prison mm. And then in Acts 22:4 Saul says I persecuted them unto death binding and delivering men and women into prisons. Now there is a problem. How does a tent maker start imprisoning people? Mm. Doesn't work really. Um again this guy must have been very important. He must have been like the chief of police or something or an army commander or royal or aristocratic or something something is wrong with the story that we are given so saul was imprisoning the church of jesus and james you remember the quote saul saul why are you persecuting me that was a quote from jesus um well as um as josephus flavius we know exactly how he was imprisoning people because he was Josephus Flavius was the army commander in command of Galilee so he was not only an author he was a Jewish army commander and later on he became a Roman army commander and what he was doing in 
Galilee at that time, as the army commander, was persecu persecuting a guy called Jesus, Jesus of Gamala, and putting him in prison. Ah, yeah, the two stories match. And of course, you would never know that if you didn't know that Saul was Josephus. So we are getting closer to the um, to the story. Um, and it, it explains why, you know, Saul was in prison. So before they went on this prison ship, Saul was in prison. And um, for, for teachings that were against Judaism, basically. Mm -hmm. But he's sitting in prison and he is seen. So these people come to his prison to see him by Festus, who was the governor, Felix, who was the governor, and Agrippa and Berenike, who was the king and queen of Judea. The king and queen of Judea don't come to prison to go and see a tent maker. Again, there is something wrong with the story. Uh, and of course, as Josephus Flavius, he was actually a very important person. And that again is, is who Saul was. He was Ju Josephus Flavius. And he was sent to Nero because he had upset the authorities. Uh, this was over the temple wall affair and so on. Um, I think at that stage, that he had become a, a spy working for Rome. We'll talk about this maybe later. But Joseph, Josephus was of the first of 24 um, priestly courses, and he was also of royal blood. So, of course, these, um, and of course, these um, governors, when they came to see him in prison, they wanted a bribe from him to get out of prison. Again, you don't ask for bribes from a pauper tent maker, hmm. but you do of someone arist aristocratic like Josephus Flavius. Um, so, yeah, why was he called a tent maker? We might as well brush up on this while we were here. Um, I, they have a habit in throughout the whole of you know, the biblical text of making these very important people look like paupers. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just poor shepherds. We were talking about this in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus, he's just a carpenter. You know, they turn these important aristocrats into paupers. Same with Saul. He was just a tent maker. No. And I don't, and th this is where, you know, there is misinformation or disinformation by the church because they must know this more than I know this, and yet they won't tell you about this. Um, it's much more likely that he wasn't a tent maker. He was a Sukkot maker. A Sukkot is a tent for the festival of tents, mm. the festival of Sukkot, which is a, one of the biggest festivals um, in Judaism, where they make tents which are imitations of the tabernacle from the Old Testament. And they all go and live in a tent for, uh, for two nights, I think it is, during this festival. It's the festival of tents. Mm -hmm. It's quite obvious that Saul was a tent maker, because this, a, a Sukkot maker, because this was a very important uh, festival. And the queen that he worked for, and we'll go into this in a minute, um, was Queen Helena 
of Edessa. Mm -hmm. And she had the biggest Sukkot in the whole of Judea. So this was a very important position. We, we might as well go into this um, because people were wondering why I'm mentioning Queen Helena. Um, because it's pretty apparent from Acts of the Apostles that Saul was working for this royal family. Um, this comes from Acts. Um, oh, the tent maker bit comes from uh, Acts 18.3, if people want to look it up. But this new section uh, comes from Acts 11.28. And it says that one named Agabus prophesied that there would be a great famine throughout the world, throughout that region, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. The disciples determined to send famine relief money to the brothers in Judea, and they sent it by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. So he was tasked with taking uh, this money from Antioch down to Jerusalem. This would have been in circa AD 50, something like that. Um, now, the problem is that it has been determined by various people, including myself, but mainly by Professor Robert Eisenman, uh, that Agabus is actually King Agbaras of Edessa. Now, that will be a new name to many people because this guy has been deleted from history. You won't find him in the works of Josephus. You won't find Edessa in the works of Josephus. You can do a computer search for Agbaras or Abgarus, sometimes he's called in the Latin text, and it will say nothing found. But here in Acts of the Apostles, we've got a mention of Agabus, which is quite obviously King um, Abgarus of Edessa. How do we know that? Because this famine relief money was quite famous. And we have a long section about this in the works of Josephus Flavius. And he says that this money was sent by Queen Helena of the Adiabeni. It's another new name for people. Mm -hmm. So much of this story has been deleted, it's untrue. So you have to have a deep knowledge of this topic before you can even begin to understand the foundations of the gospel story. So it was Queen Helena that famously sent this, uh, sent this famine relief money down to Judea. So how does she fit into the picture? Um, Adiabeni is supposed to be this place uh, over in Mos Mosul, down in uh, Iraq. Um, well, the Syriac historians, like Moses of Corinne, say that Queen Helena of the Adiabeni was married to King Abgarus of Edessa. Ah, so there is a royal link between the two. In fact, I don't think Adiabeni exists at all. I think that is just a reference to Edessa because Josephus could not mention Edessa mm -hmm. by imperial decree. Vespasian said to him, don't ever mention this place again because they were involved in the Jewish revolt. We'll go into this later. So they were persona non grata. He wasn't allowed to talk about them. So he changed their name a little bit and just called them Helena of Adiabeni, when she was actually the queen of Edessa, because um, she was married to King Agbaras. Well, history tells us that she was married to King Agbaras of Edessa. Um, 
So the famine relief money was sent by Abgarus and Helena, the king and queen of Edessa, stroke Adiabeni. Um, that is what it's talking about in Acts 11.28, that one named Agbarus, um, or should I say Abgarus, um, prophesied that there would be a great famine. And the disciples determined to send famine relief money down to Judea and sent it by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. So Saul was an ambassador of Edessa, of the king and queen of Edessa, which was King Abgarus and Queen Helena. He was an ambassador of that royal family. That's how close this place called Edessa is to the gospel story. That Saul, the guy who wrote most of the gospel story, was sorry, most of the New Testament, was an ambassador of Edessa. Mm -hmm. And remember in the Gospels, uh, in, in Acts of the Apostles, this famine relief money came from Antioch. Now, everyone immediately just assumes that they're talking about Antioch Orontes, which is on the Mediterranean coast, um, on modern Syria. No, actually, it's in modern Turkey. It's just on the join between the two. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, Edessa was called Antioch Edessa. Mm -hmm. So whenever it's talking about Antioch in Acts of the Apostles, it is probably talking about Edessa, not Antioch on the Mediterranean. And Edessa, for people who don't know it, because I had an argument with one of these critics of mine who was adamant that I was wrong, and um, he thought it was on the coast. And he was trying to tell me, you know, someone who's written a 600-page book on Edessa, that Edessa is on the Mediterranean coast. Um, no, it's not. Um, if you go from the sort of northeast corner of the Mediterranean, right up on the corner between modern Turkey and Syria, if you go due east, um, across the Euphrates, then you come to Edessa. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of north of Aleppo and due east of Antioch Orontes, which is called Antakya now on modern maps. So it's in Mesopotamia. It's across the Euphrates, which is an important point because Josephus always says that these people we're talking about came from beyond the Euphrates, mm -hmm. which Edessa is. Mm -hmm. And he called them the Babylonian Jews from beyond the Euphrates which they were because they were Jewish. Queen Helena became a Jew. She became a Nazarene Jew, the same sect as Jesus was. Um, so that's a quick introduction to Edessa because it links Saul into Edessa, mm -hmm. firmly into Edessa. Um, but I suppose the important point here is that we have changed the timeline. If Saul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was Josephus Flavius, now we have a real name to this person and a real lifetime to this person. And a lot of people said, well, that's impossible. Josephus was born too late. He was born in AD 37. Can't be Saul. Actually, he can be Saul. 
um, all you need to know is the, the, the timeline is not entirely correct. So Saul would have been born in AD 37. Uh, he would have gone on his first evangelical tour around the Mediterranean in AD 52, age 14 stroke 15. And everyone says, you can't do that. He's, he's only a kid. Well, no, of course, in Judaism, he's not. He would have had a bar mitzvah at 13 or 14, and then he would have been a man. And as a man at 14, you can get married, you can have a house, you can have a job. You are a man. And I had to point out that, you know, if I don't know if you have them around your, your way, I suppose you must do. If you get a couple of Mormons coming knocking on your door, well, as even, they do, even in Mexico, they find you. <laughs> Even in Mexico, yeah. Um, what do you get? You don't get a couple of old geezers. You get a young kid and his older brother, as it were. Um, the young kid will be about 15 and the older brother will be about 19 or something. Yeah, I had, that I is had a friend you... of mine. Uh, sorry, yeah, I had a friend of mine who, you know, they go on their mission when they're you know, 18, 19 and they go off somewhere yeah. to, to recruit people, you know. Absolutely. Well, you have to because you can't do it as an adult. Because you've got responsibilities, you've got a wife, you've got a house, you've got a family, you've got a job, you've got to look after people. You can only really do this when you are a youngster. Mm. And that's why traditionally, and even today, you go on these evangelical tours as youngsters. Mm. And that's what Saul would have been doing. So I reckon he was probably about 15. This would have been AD 52. And he was sent out on his first e evangelical tour across the Mediterranean, which didn't go down too well. Um, we'll go into this later, but then he changed and became the apostle to the Gentiles. He went down to James and said, look, the Jews don't really like this story. Can I teach it to the Gentiles? Because they seem to be quite interested. Hmm. And James said yes, for some reason. And so on his second tour, he went out as the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, preaching to the Goyim, the non-Jews. the non -Jews. Um, So. The timeline there does fit. The other timeline that gets changed is, is that Jesus cannot be crucified in AD 30. But we know that he wasn't because there are too many elements that say that, um, uh, that, say that he wasn't. Mm. Uh, for instance, Jesus describes Jerusalem being surrounded by a wall and a trench. Now, that is a direct quote from Josephus Flavius about the Jewish revolt. That happened, but that happened in AD 68, not in the AD 30s. And Jesus is describing this. Uh, it's part of the little apocalypse, they call it. Um, Jesus um, describes or mentions, um, let me get a quote for you. Uh, Zacharias Baruch. Um, so what does he say? Um, he says um, that you may come upon the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, who you slew between the temple and the altar. Um, well, that is actually a famous event. Um, but that actually was um, Zachariah, son of Baruch. 
And the problem is that Zacharias Baruch died between the temple and the altar during the Jewish revolt in AD 68. And Adam Clark, the famous uh, 19th century theologian, says of this, um, he says, some think this refers to the murder of Zachariah, son of Baruch, a rich Jew who was judged and condemned and massacred in the temple by Idiomenian zealots because he was rich and a lover of liberty. Um, but this happened in AD 68. And yet Jesus is lamenting the death of this guy. Um, and we have the same when Jesus talks about, yeah, this is a bit cryptic. And I think I'm probably the first person to have worked out what this is saying, because I've not come across anyone who has mentioned this before. But uh, in Matthew 22, 5, Jesus says, um, all their works they do to be seen by men. They make broad their phylacteries, they enlarge their fringes, and they love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. So he's complaining about some of these aristocrats being too uh, ostentatious. But I don't think many people have noticed that that quote comes from the Talmud. Mm -hmm. um, because in the Talmud, in Gittin 56, it says, um, then he sent against the Jews Vespasian the Caesar. So it's talking about Nero here. He sent against the Jews Vespasian the Caesar, who came and besieged Jerusalem for three years. There were in it three great men of wealth, Nakedemon Ben-Gorion, Ben-Kalba Shabua, and Ben-Zizit Hakaseth. Zizit Hakaseth was so called because his fringes used to trail on the cushions. Um, and again, this is um, lampooning this guy because of his ostentatiousness. His fringes, you know, in Judaism, they have these uh, tassels hanging down from their trousers. Okay. They are the Zizith. And the cushions, the big fat cushions at the main place in the temple are known as the Keseth. So they're making fun of his name because his name is Ben Zizit HaKeseth, the fringes and cushions. But Jesus makes exactly the same mockery of the fringes and cushions of Ben Zizit HaKeseth. The trouble is that Ben Zizit HaKeseth was an AD 68 character. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish revolt which is why the Talmud is mentioning him. But Jesus mentions this guy as if he's still alive and well in that, that time. Um, and so th there's lots of elements like this within the gospel story that indicates that Jesus was alive and well in the AD 60s. And the other one we get is um, the crucifixion. I wonder if I've got a quote for this. Um, <clears throat> because in the works of Josephus, no, I don't have a, don't have a quote. In the works of Josephus, um, Josephus 
himself, because he was involved in the Jewish revolt, comes back from Tekoa, um, which is Herodium to the south of Jerusalem, which was a fortress, basically. It was an army fortress. Um, and he sees the three leaders of the Jewish re revolt being crucified. And they were his former compatriots. So he takes pity on them. Actually, he probably sees that this is a very stupid thing to do. Sometimes it's better to have um, uh, hostages that are still alive rather than a hostage that is dead. You can't do very much with a dead hostage. Mm -hmm. But to have a live hostage, you've got some leverage. You've got some power over the people. I think that's what he saw. But anyway, he took them down from the cross. So he had three people, the leaders of the Jewish revolt, uh, being crucified. He went to the governor, had them taken down early from the cross, given med medical attention. Two of them died, and one of them survived. Familiar story? Yeah, this is the, um, the crucifixion of Jesus mm -hmm. with the three people on the cross. And remember, the three people on the cross were called Lestai, and the, it's translated as thieves. Uh, he had two robbers on either side. They're called Lestai, which was the name given to the revolutionaries during the Jewish revolt. Mm -hmm. Significant. Um, so it's quite obvious it's talking about the Jewish revolt here. And the... Josephus taking these guys down from the cross is a repetition, repetition of the um, crucifixion story. Problem, because this happened in AD 70. Again, we're talking about a much later um, timeline to this story. Another problem, the guy who took Jesus down from the cross was called Joseph of Arimathea. Mm -hmm. another of these guys that we have no idea who he is. He just appears at the end of the story and you're supposed to know who he is, takes Jesus down from the cross. He has the authority to do so. And you think, who on earth is this guy? But of course, in Joseph's story, it is him that takes the leaders of the revolt down from the cross. And Josephus is called Josephus Bar Matthias. Harry Matthias, because his father was called Matthias. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's uh, just, so just, it, just for anyone. Sorry, Ralph. Just for anyone who's not clear, the the of is the just explain that for people. The of somebody, the name. Yeah, thing. bar bar <clears throat> means uh, son of. So okay. they're not using bar Joseph Bar Matthias. Yeah, son of Matthias. They're using uh, Josephus Ari Matthias, which has not been explained. They say it's referring to a town. No, I, I think it's referring to his father. Um, so what that means is that Josephus was also called Joseph of Arimathea. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for, for because the last thing that anyone in the church wants is for Joseph of uh, Josephus Flavius to be linked to the gospel story. Mm -hmm. The last thing they want is for Joseph of Arimathea to be Josephus Flavius, because Josephus Flavius was a Jewish traitor. And he was a, what do I call him? I call him the, 
Quicksilver Quilled Quisling because he changed sides. He was a traitor and he only ever looked after one person himself. Mm-hmm. Nobody would want this character as being the lead character in this gospel story, whether he was known as Saul or whether he was known as Joseph of Arimathea. Mm-hmm. Um, but Arthurian legend says exactly the same. And remember, Arthurian legend, because we've not done a talk on Arthur yet. I've got a 600-page book on King Arthur. Um, As a little insider, the story of King Arthur came back from the Crusades. There is no mention of the King Arthur story before uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth in 1135, which was 30 years after the First Crusade. And remember that the First Crusade under Count Baldwin of Boulogne in 1096 did not go to Jerusalem. Where did it go to? The First Crusade went east from Antioch Arons. It went across the Euphrates and it went to Edessa. So the first city to be liberated from Muslim control during the First Crusade was Edessa. Mm-hmm. this place that is becoming central to this story. So these stories about Arthurian legend came back from the first crusade. And so they would have had a lot of knowledge from the near East, from Edessa about these events. And um, what do they say in Arthurian legend? They say that um because a lot of this story about King Arthur is actually first century because one of the heroes of Arthurian legend is Joseph of Arimathea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally different era to the supposed King Arthur, but there we go. So they say that Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down from the cross in AD 30, because they have to say that because that's the classical timeline. Um, but then he was slung into prison. So he sits in prison and he goes to sleep for three days and wakes up 40 years later. And he wakes up and his cell is covered in candles, flash of inspiration, and he's discovered in this cell by Vespasian, commander Vespasian, who becomes emperor Vespasian. And so he then becomes. A, an army commander working for Vespasian. Okay, who was the army, Jewish army commander working for Vespasian? That was Joseph Flavius, because he changed sides and started working for Vespasian. So even within Arthurian legend, we have this, what I call the 40-year chronological chasm, uh, that it didn't happen in the AD 30s, it happened in the AD Sorry, it didn't happen in the AD 20s and 30. It happened in the AD 60s and 70. The Jewish, the time of the Jewish revolt. The Jewish revolt was between AD 66 and it finished in AD 70. And that's when these crucifixions happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the real timeline of the gospel story. Um, so that's the sort of foundation for this story. 
a long foundation, I know, but anyway, I think we got there. I think, um, I think justifiably long and essential information. <laughs> well, we're changing so much of the story, we have to really sort of un underpin it before we go back and say, who was this Jesus guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's the important bit of it. Uh, because you can never under understand this story unless you understand the sort of foundation that underpins it, that Edessa has a lot to do with this story. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish revolt has a lot to do with this story. Mm -hmm. So how do we get to uh, the birth of Jesus? Um, well, I think we have to go back to Julius Caesar. So this is always interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, we start getting a much more aristocratic and powerful and royal heritage for this guy. And remember, nobody writes stories about carpenters. You only write stories about important people. Yeah. So we're going back to the Ides of March uh, in 44 BC when um, Julius Caesar is murdered. Um, by four, several senate senators. Now, Cleopatra was in Rome at the time uh, as the de facto wife of uh, Julius Caesar. And she flees back because her life is in danger now. Julius Caesar is gone. She's in danger and she flees back to um, Egypt. And she was pregnant. <laughs> and that was a problem. And Cicero is fearful of this. Cicero says, I am because he was there at the time. This is, you know, um, someone writing at the time. And Cicero says, I am grieved to hear of Tertia's loss of an expected child, but I should be glad of such a loss in the case of Queen Cleopatra and that expected scion of the breed of Caesar, mm -hmm. a scion being an heir. Um, so he was concerned that Cleopatra was pregnant and the child might be an Egyptian um, emperor of Rome. Well, they didn't have emperors in those days, but he would become the next Caesar. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want that. They didn't want to be ruled by an Egyptian. But later on, the problem subsides. Now, there's only two real ways that could happen. Either there was a miscarriage, which he is what Cicero was hoping for. He was hoping for a miscarriage or the child was a girl because a girl could not become the next emperor. Um, so that's what I think happened. And then we move on 20 odd years, 25 years. And uh, we now have Augustus, uh, Octavian Augustus is the new Caesar, the new emperor. And uh, he has to sort out his borders. You know, there's been turmoil in the Roman Empire. He has to sort out his borders. And so to uh, Yuba II of Mauritania, which is North Africa, uh, he gives her Cleopatra Selene, the daughter of Cleopatra, um, to Yuba II as a diplomatic bride. So Yuba II gets a daughter of Cleopatra, an incarnation of Isis, no less. Mm. And they have this wonderful, again, she's not very well known. This, this history is not very well taught. Let me see if I can 
do a quick screen share. So yeah, uh, if I share screen and I go to not desktop one, I want that one. And share that one. Now, hopefully you should see a picture of a tomb. And we do. Good, excellent. Um, now that's the tomb of Cleopatra Selene and Yuba II. That's quite impressive. This is in Libya, North Africa. Um, and the, the actual tomb itself was never found. As you can see, someone's been digging in the top of it to go and find it. Um, as far as I know, the actual chamber has never been found. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that's the tomb of um, Cleopatra Selene. And funnily enough, in those lands, they call her the, the Christian Queen, mm. which is unusual. Why would they call Cleopatra Selene, the daughter of Cleopatra, the um, Christian Queen? Funny. Um, oh, and the next picture, that happens to be Saul in his boat getting shipwrecked on Malta. And that happens to be Saul. Now, I find this odd. Um, quite often you'll see Saul having his flash of inspiration on the road to Damascus in Roman armor. Mm, Why is he dressed in Roman armor? There is a little section in the epistles where he says, you've got to put on the armor of God. But it seems unusual that Saul, who's supposed to be a preacher and a priest, you know, would be dressed in Roman armor. But of course, if he was Josephus Flavius, then of course he would be ro wearing Roman armor. Uh, because he was the army commander, the Jewish army commander in command of Galilee. And later on, he became a Roman army commander working for uh, Vespasian. So quickly to move on, because uh, the next picture is interesting. So Octavian is sorting out his borders. He sorted out North Africa. Um, and now he goes to Parthia or Persia. Um, to the great king there, who's Phraates IV. And he needs to sort out the borders with Parthia because they are the great enemy of Rome. They've already destroyed many legions, including the legions of Mark Antony, which were all destroyed by the Parthians, and all of their standards were taken. So he really needs to do something special to pl placate the uh, Parthians. And uh, what does he do? So he gives Frates the fourth a prostitute, a courtesan. As you do. As you do. And you think, no, that's not right. That's going to cause war if you do something like that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, she's called Theamusa Orania, or Thermusa. Again, another person who's disappeared from history. And Josephus writes about this, and he says, Frates treated Theamusa, Orania, as a concubine, but after she had a son named Frates, he declared her his lawful wife and held her in, in honor. Um, and then it says that Frates uh, considered it dangerous and a tedious thing to have power handed over by his father, so he plotted with the assistance of his mother to do away with his father. They had him uh, poisoned. Um, so this concubine, this prostitute, becomes the chief queen of all of Parthia. 
Now, how did that happen? She had to be much more special than Josephus or anyone is making out. Um, I think that she was the lost daughter of Cleopatra the Great, Cleopatra mm -hmm. VII. And that is how Octavian was able to give her as a diplomatic bride to the great king of uh, Parthia because she was a, a daughter, the elder daughter of Queen Cleopatra. Therefore, she was quite a prize. She was uh, an incarnation of Isis and a great queen, possibly, uh, although, you know, it had been taken away from her, but a de facto queen of all of Egypt. Of course, he would treat her uh, as his um, as his first wife. Um, so that is who I think Thea Musa is. And we do have a bust of her. So if we go down here. So on the left, we have Cleopatra the Great from Egypt. On the right, we have Queen Thea Musa Aurania of Parthia. Do we see a similarity there? I sort of think we do. With that receding chin and the small mouth, um, I think there is a similarity. These would be mother and daughter, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think that Queen Thea Musa Aurania was the daughter of Queen Cleopatra. Um, but as I said, she managed to poison her husband, Phraates IV, um, and she got thrown out of the country. So this was in AD 4. She gets thrown out of the uh, country with um, 600 mounted uh, archers, cavalry, basically, 200 courtiers. And I think they took with them half of the Parthian treasury, but we'll come on to that. So, and they get kicked out of the country and they go uh, across to Syria somewhere. So what do we have here? I think we have the nativity story. Oh. Because what is the nativity? The nativity is a story about a, a prince, a king, because forget the carpenter business. We'll go into that later. Jesus was said to be a king of the Jews on 30 He was called a king at his birth. He was called a king at his crucifixion. So let's go with that and say he's a real king. So we have a, a, a king or a prince being born in a state of poverty for some reason. Uh, on a journey for some reason, something to do with taxation, which it was, we'll talk about that later, um, being visited by the um, Persian Magi. Persian Magi being, you know, the three kings, as they say. Um, they were the Magi. The Magi are actually the priesthood, not the kings, the priesthood of the Parthians, the Persians. Mm -hmm. Why would the Persian priesthood be interested in a Jew being born in Judea or Syria. They wouldn't. But they would be interested in any birth to the family of Queen Theomusa or Rania, because that child would be possibly a potential prince and king of Parthia. Mm -hmm. Even if he had been thrown out of the country, maybe, but he was still a potential prince of all Parthia. 
And so, of course, the Parthian Magi would want to come and see the birth of this prince. This is the nativity story. And it's a story about Queen Theomusa Orania being thrown out of um, Parthia. And here are the three Magi in traditional dress. Um, this comes from Istanbul, I think, this uh, mosaic. And um, you see them all sitting there with their uh, Phrygian caps. And the Phrygian cap is interesting. That has a long history. It's supposed to be the cap of freedom, but I'm not entirely sure it is. I don't think anyone has sorted out exactly what the Phrygian cap refers to because it's been taken up by many nations, including France. This is the Marianne. The Marianne is the chief symbol of France, mm. and she's wearing a Parthian cap with the tassels down the back here, the flaps down the back, which is exactly how the Parthians and Persians used to wear these caps mm -hmm. with these flaps coming down the back. I've got a, a vague notion that it might be linked to the Nemean lion mm -hmm. that Hercule, Hercules used to wear on his head because that had the same sort of flaps coming down the back and the head of the lion on the top. I don't know. That's just a suggestion. But anyway, uh, it's still big in France. Here are the French ladies with the uh, Phrygian cap, um, the emblem of France. And of course, the emblem of the Smurfs. <laughs> They're all wearing the Phrygian cap. Yep. Yeah. So that's I worth diving into. I didn't realize the Smurfs were all closet Parthians. Yeah, they must be. They're, they're Magi, obviously. <clears throat> um, yeah, so uh, that is where I think this um, nativity comes from. And we get this link back to Syria and back to Odessa, because where do these people go to? There's fairly good evidence that, because Josephus talks about these people coming out of Parthia, and he gives a couple of stories which are remarkably similar, but give different names. He gives the story of Queen Theomusa Orania, who was kicked out of Parthia and went into Syria somewhere. And he also gives the story of the Babylonian Jews, from beyond the Euphrates, who also um, came out of Parthia and went to Syria somewhere. And he talks about these people because these Babylonian Jews were responsible for the Jewish revolt. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we can link all of this into Edessa because it was the Edessan uh, monarchy who started the Jewish revolt. Um, and we've probably got a quote here um, Um, so Josephus says about the Jewish revolt, uh, and remember that Josephus cannot mention Edessa because Edessa was um, the monarchy. There was persona non grata. He was not allowed to mention their names. But for the outbreak of the Jewish revolt, he says, um, He's talking here about the battle against uh, Cestius, who was the Roman commander commanding a legion, the Syrian legion, that came down to Judea to put down the revolt and got utterly annihilated. 
So they destroyed a complete um, Roman legion. Um, but uh, Josephus says of this, the most valiant in the battle against Cestius were the kinsmen of Monobazus, king of Adiabeni, and their names were Monobazus and Kennedius. Now, the Adiabeni are the Edessans. We've already said this because the queen of Adiabeni was married to the king of Edessa. And Monobazus is not a name. Some people get attached to these and say, well, you know, the Edessans, the king wasn't called Monobazus. Um, well, Monobazus is not a name. It's a title. It's a bastardized Greek title, uh, Monobasilus, meaning the only king. And of course, Jesus was known as the only king. Um, and then at the end of the Jewish revolt, when they surrendered, so these people surrendered, were the last people to surrender when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, he says of them, on the same day it was that the sons and brethren of King Izartes brought and besought Caesar to give them his right hand for their security. He kept them all in custody, but still bound the king's sons and kinsmen and led them with him to Rome in order to make them hostages for the country's fidelity to the Romans. Now, it's quite obvious that they were defeated at the end of the Jewish revolt. And the person who was defeated was King Izates of Adiabeni, who was actually the king of Edessa, because Adiabeni is Edessa. We've already been through that. Now, I must just point out here that one of my vociferous critics says that this means that the Adiabeni were allies of Rome. And you've got to wonder sometimes what planet these critics are on. It clearly says that these people started the Jewish revolt, when they destroyed the entire legion of Rome. <laughs> Some sort start. of allies they are. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end, when they surrendered to, this would have been Titus, they surrendered to Titus, who was the son of uh, Vespasian. He kept them in jail and then led them uh, still bound, i.e. in chains. They were bound and led the king's sons and kingsmen to Rome to put them in a jail in Rome. These were, these were not allies um, of the Romans. These were the enemies of Rome. And then the, the, the brain-dead critic says, well, if they had been enemies, Rome would have killed them. And again, I have to wonder what planet these people are on. That's not what you always do in war. Mm, yeah. You can probably think of many examples of this, but the example I like to give is of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, we defeated Napoleon and we didn't kill him because he had too many supporters. The last thing he wanted to do is start another revolt in France. So we put him into jail uh, on Elba, which is a, an island in the Mediterranean which was possibly a bit stupid because it was too close to where he came from. So he escaped from Elba and started another war against the rest of Europe. That's when he went marching off across um, Russia and all the rest of it. So we had to defeat him again at the Battle of Waterloo. And he was resoundly 
defeated by the British with the help of the Polish. Um, but we still didn't kill him. We took him into custody and we took him as a hostage for the fidelity of his people in France. And we sent him down to St. Helena. Now, that's an interesting name for you. St. Helena is an island down in the South Atlantic. And because Britain ruled the seas in those days, there was no way he was getting away from St. Helena. And there he expired the rest of his life in St. Helena. So, no, you don't always kill your enemies. Sometimes it's politically advantageous not to upset your enemy because there's still an awful lot of French hanging around in France, you know, after the Battle of Waterloo. Mm. And in this case, there are still an awful lot of Jews hanging around in Judea and around the rest of the empire that you don't necessarily want to upset yeah. by stringing up um, the, the king of these people, the king of Edessa. Yeah. Which is why I think that Josephus took these people down from the cross early, as we were talking about earlier. He saw the value, as he says, of keeping a hostage. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you want is a dead hostage who's just been crucified. So he took them down early and he saw the value of using these people as a hostage, which is exactly what they did. Um, and so what this means is that the Jesus character, because basically uh, this is the the uh, nativity and the crucifixion, we're saying that this was a the Jesus character. Um, now, that actually, although it sounds odd, this actually does explain quite a lot because this king was called uh, Izates. But Izates had a short name, and that was Isus. Isa or Isas, depending on the uh, declension um, in the Greek, because it's you know written in the Greek, so you get the Greek declension. Um, and that is who I think this Jesus character is. He was King Isus of Edessa. More than that, his name, uh, if you combine the Adiabeni and the Edessan names, his king was Isus Manu. And that explains the um, that explains the strange prophecy that we get in Matthew uh, one twenty three, where it says that a son will be born to a virgin, and his name will be uh, called Emmanuel. You probably remember the the famous verse, and that was a prophecy that he would become the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And that prophecy doesn't make any sense whatsoever because Jesus was never called Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. So he cannot have been the Messiah. He was just a naughty boy because he was never called Emmanuel. So what is this prophecy trying to say? Well, what I think it is, is it's the standard thing you always get in secret societies. Um, like masonry and so on, is that it's a way of covering up. In, in, in the Talmud, they would call it um, uh, Pesha. Um, yeah, in the Talmud, they would call it Pesha. 
uh, which is a way of explaining past events, sorry, a way of explaining present events by using um, events that have happened in the Old Testament. And so what they do in order to prophesy what will happen is they go trawling through the Old Testament looking for um, similar events and similar characters uh, that have occurred in the Old Testament. And if you know what happened to these people in the Old Testament, then that will give you a prophecy uh, for what will happen in the current time. It's called Pesha prophecy. And that's exactly what they've done here. But I think they are just covering up this person's name. He will be called Emmanuel. Mm. It's a way of covering up this guy's name because this was heresy. You weren't, weren't allowed, allowed to know that Jesus was a king of Edessa. Mm. So within your secret society, you could just say, um, Manu. His name was Manu. Mm. And then people say, ah, now I now I wonder. Sorry, now I understand what you're talking about. Yep. So the name for Jesus was Jesus Emmanuel, and the name of this king of Edessa was King Jesus Manu, the sixth of Edessa. They had the same names, uh, which is always advantageous if you're trying to uh, conflate two characters. They have the same. Same life story. We just looked at the nativity and the death. And remember, because he was crucified and taken down early by Josephus Flavius. But remember, when he was crucified, he was crucified while wearing a purple cloak and a crown of thorns. But of course, I'm just going to do another quick screen share. Bill. The traditional crown of the Edessan kings was the crown of thorns. So you should see a coin there now. Indeed, yep. Um, this is a king of Edessa. This is King Abgarus of Edessa. This is a later Abgarus. This is Abgarus the 10th, I think. But they all wore this same crown of thorns. So for people on podcast, perhaps, if you can't see the image, um, what he has here is not a crown of brambles, as they try to portray within Christianity, of course, because they're trying to make this guy a pauper prince of peace. And of course, he wasn't. He was a warrior monarch. He was a real king of the Jews. And we'll go into that in a minute. Um, he had a royal crown. It wasn't a crown of brambles. And what we have is sort of like a bishop's mitre, and it's covered in some sort of spines on the top of it. Hmm. We don't know what those spines are. The Parthian kings often had these mitres with different things on the top of them. There's one I saw, which was really interesting, had a row of gazelles on the top of it. Hmm. And we don't know what that signified either. But anyway, this one doesn't have gazelles. This has spines. It is a crown of thorns. Um, and so, yes, this would, all of these Edessa monarchs wore the same crown. So even in the first century, it would have been the same as this. Jesus would have been, King Jesus, Manu of Edessa, would have been wearing a crown of thorns. And this is what the crucifixion was all about because they're crucifying this guy as a pretender to the throne of Rome. That's why they dressed him up in a purple cloak. 
The purple cloak was the symbol of the emperor of Rome. And only the Roman emperor could wear one. And, and so um, uh, strong was this, this taboo that, um, who was it? It was Yuba I of North Africa uh, went to Rome because he was, he was a king and he thought himself very important. And so he wore a purple cloak uh, to Rome. And so he was um, executed. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that in Rome. That is the prerogative uh, of the emperor. So to dress Jesus up in a purple cloak on the cross is saying that he was a pretender to the throne of Rome. Mm -hmm. And he was a pretender wearing a crown of thorns, i.e. he was an Odessan king who was pretending to be a um, the next emperor. And that's exactly what they were doing because um, do I have, I think I've got some images here. This is what this royal family were doing. Um, they, I'm just looking for some images. Yeah, this one. This royal family weren't just agitating in Judea. This is the um, Temple of Bel at uh, Palmyra, which is now being destroyed by ISIS. I was greatly upset about this because this is one of the finest Roman temples in the Roman Empire. And the um, Neanderthals, the Muslim Neanderthals of ISIS blew it up. So I was one of the last people to actually see this. This is my photo. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been to uh, Palmyra uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, this would have been one of the towns that was controlled by the Edessa monarchy. Their principality ran from Edessa, which is in, it's just about in modern Anatolia, all the way down to Palmyra, which is sort of um, east of Damascus sort of thing. Um, out in the desert. Anyway, this is Palmyra. This would have been one of their possessions, one of their main cities. And it grew to be this enormous, great wealthy city in the first century, just after these monarchs were kicked out of Parthia. Anyway, that's a sort of by the by. What I wanted to show is this, which unfortunately there's not much left of it, but this is the palace of Queen Helena of Adiabeni Edessa. Mm -hmm. So, and this is down in Jerusalem. This is just to the um, south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they're doing a dig there now. And in fact, they don't even mention Queen Helena anymore. They just call it the um, Giovanni parking lot. Oh, wow. And you think, why are they still trying to cover up who Queen Helena is? They really don't want to know her, even though she saved Judea from famine in AD 50. And even though she became the queen of the Jews. That is what I think they don't want to admit, yeah. that uh, Queen Helena of Edessa became the queen of the Jews in the AD 50s, probably following on from her uh, famine relief money part of the reason for giving it, of course, um, 
that she went down to Jerusalem and she built the largest palace and the largest tomb in Jerusalem. And she donated the uh, solid gold menorah to the temple. And remember, she became a Nazarene Jew. It says so in the Talmud um, that she did seven years of initiation in order to become a Nazarene Jew. And remember that Jesus was also a Nazarene, the same sect of Judaism. So this is her palace, which is obviously all destroyed now uh, in Jerusalem. This is her tomb, which was the largest tomb in Jerusalem. It's known as the Tomb of the Kings. It should be known as Tomb, tomb of the Queens, really, I suppose. Mm. Um, and uh, so this was her tomb. Again, it's mostly been destroyed. Um, this was said to be her sarcophagus. And this has an interesting history because um, this was discovered in the 19th century by Sowley, I think it was, Professor Sowley, French guy. <clears throat> so I went off to um, the Louvre to go and see it and take a picture of it. And it wasn't there. So I got in touch with the authorities while I was there in the Louvre. And uh, they said, oh, there's, there's no such thing. We don't have it. Never heard of it. And I said, well, yes, you do. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen. No, we don't have it. Hmm. Okay. So I went back to England again and I did a big search and this was almost pre-internet. It was, it was not e easy to find. And finally I found um, some newspaper cuttings from the uh, times of London, which said that this sarcophagus had been taken and it had been donated to the Louvre. So I sent them the cuttings of this newspaper and says, you, you do have it. <laughs> So, um, and this was all done by letter because there was no email. So anyway, finally, I got a reply from the Louvre and they said, oh, um, yes, sorry, we mislaid it. <laughs> oh, <Jesus>. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> we found it in a warehouse. <laughs> so you can imagine this sort of, you know, um, Indiana Jones warehouse with, you know, boxes everywhere. And they finally found this box. Anyway, so they brought it out and they put it on display in the Louvre. So I went to the Louvre to see it and it wasn't there. <laughs> so I, I went to the um, uh, administrators and I said, well, where's the sarcophagus? And they said, oh, we've, we've donated it to Israel for some anniversary i'm not sure what the anniversary was of so they donated it to israel without even bothering to tell me so i had to go back again and come back to the louvre for the third time to actually take a photo of it so <laughs> this is the um uh the sarcophagus and it says queen on it this is why they think it is linked to queen helena because it says the queen on it but it gives a different name um, what name does it give? I can't remember. But anyway, it says the queen and a name afterwards. Um, and so this is thought to be the sarcophagus of Queen Helena, who was the queen of the Jews in the 8050s. And of course, if Jesus was a son, because King Jesus Manu was the son of this, this queen, 
then he would have been the king of the Jews because she was the queen of the Jews, the de facto queen of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so he became the de facto king of the Jews. And that's exactly what he was trying to do. Uh, if you remember when Jesus was um, anointed, I'm just looking in this up because I can't remember the um, the verse number. So this is uh, from uh, John twelve three or Matthew fourteen three. Um, it says, "Then Mary took a pound of ointment of." Bicanard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, why did she do that? Well, quite obviously, this is uh, the anointing of the king of the Jews. This is this is what Messiah means. This is what Christ means. They're not sort of spiritual names. Messiah means the anointed king. Christ means the anointed king. Um, when King Charles III, I think he is, at the coronation we've just had in Britain, King Charles was anointed with oil. And you couldn't see what happened because they put a big awning over the top. They put a big um, screen around the throne while he was being anointed. And note when he was being anointed, he was just in a, a loose shirt. So he wasn't dressed up in his royal robes. He was in a loose uh, white robe because they have to anoint his back between the shoulders. They have to anoint his chest. Um, and the anointing is done by the high priest, who is the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. He has to be anointed in order to become the Christ, to become the Messiah. So his official title should be Christ Charles or Charles the Christ mm -hmm. or Charles the Messiah, because he was just made the Messiah by being anointed. Well, Jesus had exactly the same. And this happened. Uh, it was the anointing was done by Mary Magdalene who anointed him with spikenard. Um, so that means that Mary Magdalene must have been uh, very important because she was effectively the chief priest, because only the chief priest uh, can do this anointing. And this anointing was done at the house of Simon at Bethany, the house where Lazarus was raised from the dead. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and this is important because who was this Mary? Who was Mary and Martha of Bethany? Um, who was this, excuse me, Simon? Um, because this anointing was done at the house of Simon. Well, from uh, Professor Eisenman, he says that uh, this house of Simon was belonged to Simon Bothus. And therefore, Mary and Martha from the gospel story were Mary and Martha Bothus, who were very famous people in that era. Now, Eisenman couldn't follow his logic to the to the end of the story because he he said that Mary and Martha 
must be Mary and Martha Bothus from the Talmud. And the reason he said, what did he say? He said that the life of Mary Magdalene must have been based upon Mary Bothus. Uh, they couldn't be the same. Why couldn't they be the same? Well, because there's a 40-year gap between the two. Mary and Martha are supposed to be AD 20s characters because Jesus was um, crucified in AD 30, whereas in reality, they were AD 60 characters during the uh, Jewish revolt. Uh, and uh, Simon Bothus was one of the leaders of the Jewish revolt. We're talking about the Jewish revolt again. Now, that all sort of makes sense, but it changes the story somewhat because Simon Bothus, Bothus was the richest man in Judea, the richest man in the Near East. Mary Bothus, i.e. Mary Magdalene, was the richest woman in the whole of the Near East. When she married she was given a dowry of one million gold denarii. She was a millionaireess. And in today's money, that is worth about $26 billion just for her dowry, not the family wealth. Crazy. And who did she marry? She married Jesus, of course. So Mary Bothus, this historical character from the Jewish revolt, married Jesus of Gamala. The poor carpenter. Yeah, the very same Jesus of Gamala that Josephus Flavius was chasing around Galilee that we were talking about earlier. Mm. The very same Jesus of Gamala who became the high priest of Jerusalem, uh, just as Jesus did in Hebrews 7. Um, the very same Jesus of Gamala who was set? Who he was the governor of um, Tiberius in Galilee, who was said to be the the commander of six hundred rebel fishermen. Who was the leader of rebel fishermen in the gospel story? Now, come on, that's <laughs> that's that's the biblical Jesus, you know. He was the fisher of men. Um, and, and his disciples were supposed to be fishermen. Um, and of course, this has nothing to do with fishermen. It's all to do with the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so perhaps we ought to talk about Zodiacs. Absolutely. Did we talk about Zodiacs much in the previous? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, that's always interesting. Let's talk about Zodiacs because they are central to this story. They really, so really somewhere, are. Somewhere here, I've got a... Um, series of images how about that one yeah okay so if i go to screen share again screen share that one share okay and you should have a zodiac come up we do now this is interesting because again this is not taught very well None of this is taught very well. If you go to Sunday school, if you go to church, you will know nothing about this because they don't want you to know anything about this yeah. because this is a Jewish zodiac. So the primary symbol of Judaism, Nazarene Judaism, the church of Jesus and James, was the zodiac. 
And there are loads of these. These are ancient zodiacs in Judea and Jordan um, in synagogues. So this is in a synagogue. From, they say, the third century, I say this is first century, and for good reason. And where is this zodiac? It's in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. Who owned this zodiac? Jesus of Gamala. <laughs> the same guy. Um, so to anyone who can't see the imagery, if you're on podcast or something, uh, we're looking at a standard zodiac that you would understand today with all the standard symbols, um, the 12 signs of the zodiac. Uh, inside the zodiac is Helios. And Helios is holding a blue-green uh, spherical earth in his gravitational grasp. Mm -hmm. Now, this is odd because this is a Jewish zodiac. And we know it's Jewish. You know, above this, there is another zodiac. Sorry, another zodiac. Uh, another mosaic. Because this is big. This is like five meters across. This is a big zodiac. Um, above this, there is uh, a mosaic of the... Temple of Jerusalem, the the menorah, the shofar, all of the accoutrements of Judaism are, are in the panel above this one. Um, but in the middle of this one, even though it's a Jewish zodiac, we've got Helios, <laughs> the sun god. What is Helios doing um, on a Jewish zodiac? You can see how different Nazarene Judaism was to Orthodox Judaism and to modern Judaism. Modern Judaism is nothing like this. You're not allowed these idolatrous images all over your, um, uh, your synagogue in today's church, in today's synagogue. Um, but this Helios guy, let's zoom in a bit. He is holding a spherical earth. And we know it's spherical because you've got lines of latitude that are curved on it. Mm -hmm. So we've got latitude and longitude in gold lines that are curved, which would only happen on a sphere. And you also see we have bright lighting on the left and darkness on the right. Again, that would only happen with a sphere. Mm -hmm. So whoever made this, the Nazarene church, they understood that the earth was held in the gravitational grasp of Helios the sun, so that the earth circled the sun. They understood the heliocentric model of the universe, of, mm -hmm. of the solar system. Yeah. And the head of Helios points at the join between Aries and Pisces. And this was, again, this was all to do the, with the procession of the equinox. Uh, would, will your vi uh, viewers understand procession? I hope so. Maybe just a quick nutshell explanation. Quick update on procession. So the Earth wobbles on its axis, uh, and it has a big, long 26,000-year wobble. And a part of that wobble is that as you look out uh, on the eastern horizon at the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, the constellation that rises with the sun will change every 2,000 years, every 2,200 years, actually. Um, and it will go through the entire cycle of all the constellations of the zodiac. And it so happens that Aries changed into Pisces in AD 10. 
So we are now, that's why we reset our calendar. We're not uh, in 2023 AD, Anno Domini, after Jesus. We're actually 2023 after, or rather I should say, of the great month of Pisces. Because Aries changed to Pisces in about, call it AD zero sort of thing. Um, So we're in the age of Pisces at present. That is why, and we went from Aries to Pisces at the turn of the first century. And that's why Jesus was born as a lamb of God, but became a fisher of men. He went from Aries to Pisces. This is all to do with the Zodiac. And the head of Helios points at the join between Aries and Pisces. So it's pointing at AD 10. Now. That's interesting because it gives us a processional date for this uh, Zodiac. Mm. But we also have a mention of this Zodiac from Josephus Flavius. So Josephus Flavius says that he personally, because remember he was the army commander in command of Galilee, was sent to uh, Tiberius to, to the palace there, which lay for four furlongs south of Tiberias in order to destroy the idolatrous images of animals. Mm -hmm. At the name of the palace was the Hot Springs. And of course, if you go four furlongs south of Tiberias, you come to this place, which is known as Hamat, which is the Hot Springs. And it has inside it the idolatrous images of animals. It's pretty obvious that Josephus Flavius was sent to destroy this zodiac. Mm-hmm. And the person who owned this zodiac that was going to get punished was Jesus of Gamala, who I say is the biblical Jesus. Jesus of Gamala is this Isis Izati's king fellow from, um, from Edessa. He was down in Judea um, while his father was still alive. So he was just a prince. He wasn't a king at that time. He was down in Judea because he had been to um, Egypt for his education. That's where you would go as a prince. You would go to the greatest um, university of the era was down in Alexandria in Egypt. That's where you would go for your education. That's why Jesus went to Egypt for his youth. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Um, According to the Talmud, Jesus brought the sacred name of God out of Egypt, tattooed on his thigh. Um, He had been to Egypt for his education. He had been to Alexandria. And now he was in Judea trying to expand the Edessan um, territory down into Judea. This was the whole idea was to take over Judea. If you could take over Syria and Judea, these were the wealthiest places in the Roman Empire at this time. Mm -hmm. Syria was really, really wealthy at this time. It's got the largest temples in the whole of the Roman Empire are in Syria. If you look at Palmyra, uh, if you look at uh, Baalbek, the largest temples uh, in the whole of the Roman Empire. If you could take over the Roman East, you would have a good springboard for taking over the rest of the Roman Empire, which is exactly what these people tried to do. 
This concludes part one of the show. You'll find part two and related materials in my members-only portal, The Truthiversity, the consciousness-raising university. This creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content. Updated regularly, my members get access to absolutely everything I create, including full podcasts, videos, blogs, courses, audio files, live internal events, the whole enchilada. Grab yourself a free 24-hour pass at access.truthiversity.com.